and welcome to Not Safe for Publication, a podcast about the lighter side of humanities research. I'm Georgia. I'm Anna. And today we have Georgie. Georgie, welcome. Hi there. Thank you for having me. This is so exciting. (laughs) Thank you for joining us. I hope we can live up to the excitement. (laughs) So Georgie is a first year history PhD here at the University of Manchester. Uh, Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and about your research? Sure. So, as you very kindly said, I am Georgie, and my research focuses on the Order of St. Stephen and their role at the intersection of Crusade and Commerce in the late 16th century. And what does that mean? That means it's very Indiana Jonesy um, because I get to read lots of papal bulls that mention treasure references, and there's coded letters about the role and how they interact with the Ottoman Empire. Because when I first started this journey of researching the role of the Order of St. Stephen, I was really excited to find out that they had been developed by the Medici family and that they did a lot of kind of underground networking with the Ottoman Empire in the name of the papacy. So it completely flips what we know of Christianity's interactions with Islam during this period, because traditionally we have this whole understanding of the Crusades and it's like, oh, we have to drive the enemies of Christ out of the Mediterranean and let's smite them into the dust. And then when you read some of these documents, you actually find out that the papacy itself was doing quite a lot of trade with the leaders of Islam in kind of Ottoman Empire's regions. So we're in kind of Da Vinci Code kind of territory here. It is the Da Vinci Code. It's the Da Vinci Code. That's how I explain it. It's like a cross of national treasure, the Da Vinci Code and Indiana Jones. Well, that's how I see it. So yeah. What kind of form does your research take? Are you visiting archives? Are you going to exciting locations? Or would you be in a normal year? Yeah, in a normal year, I would be going to Florence, Rome, Venice, and the Vatican archives, which made me even more excited because I'm like, oh, it's like the Da Vinci Code. So I'd be doing a lot of archival work, just be spending my days in the archives transcribing documents and going through them to find the missing link between it all. And it is really fun going through these documents because a lot of the time I think people think, oh my god, you're just stuck in the library going through letters, letter after letter. But actually, you come across some really exciting ones and some of them are, are quite funny because they'll just they'll just be letters of them like moaning about the weather or like so-and-so got thrown off their horse and landed in the mud or something. And you get a real sense of these people's lives from hundreds of years ago and then you actually find out like, well, there's a lot of banter that people just don't seem to realise happened. And I just love it so much. So, yeah. It seems like a real cross-section of this sort of family history, I guess, with the Medicis, then the kind of institutional, Mm. political, economic history, especially exploring this connection with the papacy and the papacy as political actor. Yeah. The best way to describe it is that it's a micro-historical thematic study of what has traditionally been studied in a macro-approach if that makes sense. And when we look at the individuals, I call them individuals, but really they're just kind of like groups of people. So you've got the Medici and their desire to expand Grand Ducal Tuscany from 1561 onwards through the Order of St. Stephen. Then you have the Papal States. You have the competitors of Genoa, Lucca and Venice during this time. And it's the way I kind of describe it to people, it's, it's kind of like Game of Thrones. Whoever gets the hand of the Ottoman Empire wins the competition for commercial supremacy within the Mediterranean region. And it's just really fun like that. But it is, there's a lot of kind of power play on politics, religion, 
and the economy during this time. Is there a, a material culture to all this? What was actually being traded? Oh, this is where it gets really fun because <laughs> spices and flowers and silk and illegal wool trade from North Yorkshire. <laughs> and Because the Medici family in themselves, obviously they're well known for founding the Medici Bank. And then they had their own personal links to the papacy. There was a few Medici popes. There was quite a few Medici cardinals and all that kind of stuff. But during this time, it was illegal. You couldn't trade English wool. So it was almost kind of a bit of a, like, a money laundering effect where the Medici ships would, would go and get English wool from North Yorkshire and then they would trade it through the countries to get to the Medici. And then at the end of the day, the Medici always got their money. They just got it through some quite underground aspects, I guess. Yeah, that's it. But I always have a smile to myself because I've done a lot of camping in the Yorkshire Dales and you come across kind of like historical areas where there are still kind of Viking buildings almost that are there, but they're completely destroyed, like all crumbled down into stones. Settlements. And I was like, oh, there's some sheep. And this was for DUV. And I did a presentation on the Swaledale sheep. It was very nerdy. And when I was researching the Medici's links to English wool merchants during this period, I was like, oh my God, it's the sheep. So... I thought it was quite cool. <laughs> All those years later, these sheep really... Yeah, they have. Because I was really nerding out over these sheep when I was 16. And now it's like, oh, it's actually relevant to my research. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> Those sheep have really stuck with you. Yeah. Sheep with international connections. It is, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> they also are quite cute sheep as well. To say They're so fluffy. On the topic less fluffy... <laughs> And that's, you know, another kind of famous things about the Medicis. Are there a lot of murders? Yes, yeah, there are a lot of murders. I think what happened? So the area that I'm studying, I'm kind of looking at four Medici Grand Dukes in general. We've got Cosimo the First, then we've got Francesco Ferdinando and Cosimo the Second. And I think there's a rumour or it's evidence somewhere that, that Ferdinando murdered Francesco and that Francesco was studying to be a cardinal and then he was like, oh no, there's more money in being a Medici man. So he just wanted to become Grand Duke and do it that way. But there's a lot of murders going on just in general in that time in Florence. <laughs> it's pretty easy. There's no policemen, there's no detectives. You can just murder who you want. Poison was a good choice because you could just quite easily... Yeah, it's just, just get them drunk and poison them. <laughs> I'm actually reading a really cool book at the minute on assassins during this period. And what I didn't realise was that the Ottoman Empire in this region has actually well developed the game Assassin's Creed. And I was so excited because I was like, oh my gosh, this is a real concept. So yeah, assassins were very popular during this time. And I think the Medici made good use of them. Yeah, when you were talking about, you know, your research being kind of Indiana Jones and kind of National Treasure and stuff, I was thinking it is also quite Assassin's Creed. Yeah, it is. Yeah, like, because the Medici family's definitely yeah. quite a big pop plot point in some of the earlier games. Yeah. You are doing something that's sort of genuinely quite exciting, I feel like sort of trying to prove these sort of backdoor dealings and stuff. Are you sort of going up against some established ideas in the field or? Yeah, it is. My supervisor, he said, he's like, we will have to tread very carefully so as not to upset people, I suppose, in regard to what this could potentially uncover. Because I think you are kind of challenging what is known of Catholicism's links to Islam, particularly when you get past this kind of traditional crusading tropes of like, if you're an infidel, we don't want you. But when you get this idea that they did a lot of trade with them, it, it contradicts itself 
in a way. And there was a really good book that was published in the 1940s. And it's ter- I can't pronounce it. It's like Renaissance, Renaissance Midden Turks perhaps or something. It's about the Ottoman Turks' relationships with the papacy um, historically. And there is no copy of it in the Vatican holdings because it was that controversial. And I believe a lot of them were destroyed. There's only a few copies that are available. And now I'm kind of like, oh my god, I'm doing something similar. Don't destroy my work. <laughs> so but I think we're open to interpretation now as a global society. We're more willing to like learn both sides of the story, which is something that is coming out slowly in Western meta-narratives of trans-Mediterranean interaction. So we've got the traditional Western Eurocentric perspectives of trans-Mediterranean history, interaction with the Middle East and whatnot and North Africa. And what I'm building upon within um, contemporary literature is an Ottoman-centric perspective. So for all, I'm using a Western narrative of the Order of St. Stephen for my current research. It develops upon their interactions with Ottoman individuals during this time period. Well, it's very interesting. You know, I feel like a lot of us, I certainly, I can speak for myself on this, feel like we're making quite minor interventions into the scholarship. We're adding some sort of small detail to a picture that's already really quite fleshed out, but we're not changing the picture drastically with what we're doing. Whereas you're talking about something that has the potential to really, uh, I guess, go head to head with some received wisdom and make some potentially quite big interventions. That's really exciting at this kind of stage in your career. I like to do things big. (laughs) They always start out small, unintentionally, and then they just go big without meaning to. I thought I'd say, oh, that looks quite a nice idea. And then it'll just like go off the charts in terms of what it actually does. So it's quite funny, really. And I mean, it's, an exciting kind of period to be looking in into papacy as kind of a political actor because you can say a lot more than you used to be able to say uh, but at the same time it's still a powerful political actor that still kind of engages in international politics in either soft power or kind of mediator kind of way. I mean the current pope gives me a lot of hope for moving forward with this kind of research as for global institutions and for individuals who do want to research this further because he changed the archives name from being the Vatican Secret Archives to the Vatican Apostolic Archives. He opened the war archives for the, the Vatican's actions during World War II. And I think the current Pope is really trying to say, look, we're not the big scary institution that we have been made out to be potentially. Like, yes, we do have a history and we have a past and not all of it is good and bright and wonderful, but we need to learn from our actions as a collective society. And I think that with the attitude that's growing in the Vatican as it stands, that that is something that my research can potentially help. So I'm quite happy that I can move forward with this project. That's an exciting thing that those things come out and they can be integrated into broader history of the Catholic Church. Yeah, so it's really exciting. I think we're kind of commercialising the Vatican in this sense because during this time period you have 1571 is the Battle of Lepanto and this is when the Order of St. Stephen as a kind of naval military force sailed under the flag of the papacy with the aid of the Pope. But they also did a lot of commercial interaction with the Ottoman Empire during this time. And it's actually documents where it states, you know, like, oh, we're going to bring over some rugs and we're going to bring over some spices. But then at the same time, they're also fighting those same ships in the open sea. So it seems, I think it's suspicious. I think there's something there.
You mentioned that you also deal with like coded yes. documents. Has someone else already done the work of decoding these or are you, do you have to do that? I'm not sure. I, I know there are code documents. I need to go to the archives and access them. Unfortunately, they are only available to be read on site in the archives because apparently they do hold some quite strong political value historically. And what happened was in like 1911, Christie's Auction House held a sale of the Medici archive collection. But when the Medici family were selling these documents, the Italian government stepped in and said, whoa, 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 you can't sell all of these documents. They hold some key political history for us. And it's even relevant now. So now I'm like, yes, even more secrets. Like, this material cannot leave Italian soil. So with what was left from the Medici collection, half of it got bought by Harry Gordon Selfridge, who later gifted it to the Baker Library at Harvard University. And the other half was purchased by the John Bryan's Library in Manchester. So outside of Italy, we have one of the largest collections of Medici material within Europe, which is quite exciting. But due to, yeah, but due to the political material held within the Medici documents that are in Italy, you have to go on site and do it. And I just, I cannot wait to go and see these code letters and think, oh my gosh, I get to decode these. It's just getting more and more Da Vinci Code-esque now, I feel. I mean, I, I love anagrams, so I'm secretly hoping that there'll be lots of, like, early modern anagrams. You've got some of the classic ways of coding things, like the famous Mason riddle where, you know... Oh, last time I came across, that was in an escape room. Yeah, so you have the symbols. I love Caesar ciphers. They're some of my favourite Caesar ciphers. They're brilliant. I do some tutoring and I've been teaching a little boy how to make his own Caesar ciphers. But he do, he'll do really, really well. And then he'll just start making stuff up. And I'll just be like, no, that's that's not how it works. So yeah, that's very exciting, and I think a separate project on coding in Renaissance Europe is due. I do too. Could be really exciting stuff. How did you find starting this year? It's good. Not what I expected, obviously, due to the current global situation. <laughs> but it's been going really, really well so far. I think it's just a way of adapting your research, I suppose. So. I've been contacting the archives in Italy a lot to access material and have that like duplicated and sent over. Um, so I've got a little collection that I'm going to transcribe and go through. In terms of research, that's going great, really. I can't think of anything that's going wrong with it due to the current situation. The only thing it can do is get better. And that once everything opens, and I'm really looking forward to that happening. <laughs> yeah, that, and like, you've got some really exciting travelling to do once everything reopens. Yeah. I cannot wait. I'm so excited. I do wonder about like the whole auction and selling Medici documents and and what political stuff is in them. When I went into Russian State Historical Archive, I had to sign a paper saying because it holds like institutional stuff from the Russian Empire, and so I had to sign a pa uh, paper saying if I learn a state secret, I'm not telling anyone. I think it'll probably be like that. I imagine so. I'm really excited to see this material. I just am thinking, will it be like the Da Vinci Code? Will we find the missing link or something? Because in some of the material I have read, it mentions the use of holy relics in battle. And now I'm just like, this is like Indiana Jones, like, bring me the Ark of the Covenant, I'm ready. It's really fun. And a lot of the time within the material 
that I read, the Medici, they're trying almost to reclaim right of the title to claim Jerusalem through these kind of underground trade deals. And there's a lot of reference to Godfrey of Bouillon. He was like the first crusading victor to get to Jerusalem or something. And they just want to get Jerusalem back at the end of the day. And I think during this time, they were just trying to do anything possible. They were doing every single method. They were like, right, we'll fight on land and sea and we'll also get you commercially. So I think there was probably quite a lot of backstabbing literally and like verbally (laughs) in that sense. So do you think these economic interaction was a part of the kind of broader effort to get Jerusalem or do you think it was a part of compartmentalizing? There is documents which do say that it is purely to just get Jerusalem. I almost see it as though we've had like four crusades now, we're not doing that well with it, how else can we capture the city? Oh, we'll do it through money (laughs) and we'll use these holy orders as middlemen to do so. So I think it's almost kind of like, you know, during today's society, if the country does something bad, rather than go to war, we just cut commercial ties with them almost. I think this is like the early modern version, (laughs) but they'll fund it as opposed to cutting it. That's very exciting stuff. And you talk so much about networks, but do you have a favourite character? Yes, within the letters, I I get quite excited when I find how Raffaello de' Medici is doing, because he is the nephew of Cosimo I de Medici. And in 1565, he was brought into the Order of St. Stephen. And he became quite a prominent member in the Order. And he wrote letters all the time to his uncles and other kind of military personnel within Europe. And I just love seeing how he's doing because as we get to like 1610 almost, or the early 1600s, he's really sick of his life. And I'm like, poor Raffaello, you'll be okay. You can do it. And because he really started out wanting to defend Christianity and he was really into crusading like this idea of being chivalric and like going off and and fighting the enemy and everything and then there's a certain turning point in the late 16th century where we do start to see underground trade going on with the Ottoman Empire and Raffaello does not like that one bit he kind of throws his dummy out the pram and he says I don't want to trade with the enemy like this goes against my beliefs totally and in the end I think he quits but it's just fascinating to see his whole kind of character arc if there was a movie his character arc is quite intense um, at times but I do love reading about him in particular such a good plot for for a historical novel isn't it just it's awesome It, it would make the best. I kind of imagine it as totally Game of Thrones. She could so make it like that. Got secrets, code letters, murder, families trying to get the money at the end of the day, and you'll have some great costumes. Oh, and I think I even read somewhere that they put codes in carpets. Like, how they wove the carpet would be a code. And I was like, this is even better now. Yeah, coated carpet. How? Yeah, I don't know. There's a letter in the Medici archives which expresses two ambassadors from Grand Ducal Tuscany go to Constantinople or Istanbul or whatever it was called at the time. And they're specifically told not to look like ambassadors. They have to look like they're carpet salesmen. And they go over because if they're caught, they'll be assassinated. So they have to go and they have to bring all these carpets. And then there's bags of spice and um, some tulips or something. And they get there and they have to present all of this material to whoever they're meeting. And they're like, but it's all coded so you can't tell anyone. So it's quite fun. So I think that's, is it Antony and Cleopatra? Cleopatra was hidden in a carpet or something and she like unrolled herself. I almost imagine them doing that. I think it, like, it could have gotten like, risky. So I don't know. But it is, there is so much to discover and uncover and document and bring it to light in the present day and I think it's I just can't wait to get my hands into it I'm really excited to start the first chapter of writing I'm not gonna lie 
So something that we ask all our guests is if they have a funny anecdote or something funny from their research to share with us. I'm not that far into research, obviously just being the first year and this is the second semester. But before I started the PhD, we had gone to Bali in Indonesia and we were having a great old time. It was three weeks in the sunshine before everything started. And I got in the hot tub because I was like, this is going to be good. And then a few minutes later, this, this chap got in. He was very tall. And I said, hi, nice to meet you. As you do, because it always feels awkward if you're just sat somewhere random and there's another person across from you. And I just wanted to make conversation. And then he, I can't remember his name, but he said he was a, a member of the Russian government. And I was like, oh, right, okay. This is nice to meet you. Like, pretty good. So he's, he's like, oh, you speak Russian. I was like, a little bit. And then we got talking. He says, oh, so what do you do? And I was like, oh, well, I'm, I'm getting waiting to start my PhD. And it's like the early modern period. And we're going on about that. And then a few minutes after that, this other guy gets in the hot tub. And we got talking. And it turns out that he was like the world's leading specialist of Rembrandt artwork. And then they knew each other, bizarrely. And I was like, this is really freaky. Because I'm just sat between these two men in a hot tub in Bali. And they're just talking away about their research. And then I was like, oh, so then he said, what do you do? So I said, Dad, this is what I'm looking at. And then they were like, ah! And then they were just asking my opinion on stuff. And I just had to, like, like, play it cool. But inside I was like, is this like a mafia thing? Like, what's going on? I was really freaked out. Because <laughs> it, was, it was just really suspicious. Because I said to, like, the, the politician man, I was like, shouldn't you be in Russia? And he was like, no, I'm here on business. And then, obviously, Dutch Rembrandt man came along. And there's only like 13 portraits of Rembrandt in the world. And they were on about them. So I was thinking, hmm, what's going on? But it was, that's just, I will never forget that. And also, I gave them a really like firm handshake each because I was really scared. <laughs> and then they were like, wow, that's a firm. In, while in the hot tub. In Bali, in the hot tub. And I was like, nice to meet you. And like that. And then. Very formal for quite an informal situation. And the Russian guy was like, wow, that's a very firm grip. I think these guys might have been messing with you, Georgie. No, it, it was really weird. It was such a bizarre thing. And then I googled Rembrandt Man and he was real. Oh, oh my god, the plot thickens. And then I was, I googled the Russian guy and he, he was real as well. And I was like, this is really freaky. God, they were there doing some kind of illegal art deal in the hot tub. I know. <laughs> they thought you were part of it. I was like, I'm not part of anything illegal. It was so creepy. You might be called as a witness. I know. I was thinking, I don't want to be part of anything. But we got, I could kind of talk about art in that regard because I had been applying for like jobs in auction houses for the early modern art collection. So I'd applied for like Sotheby's and Christie's and, and Bonhams or whatnot. And um, I'd had some interviews and it was going really well. But then, oh my God, I did not expect to be in that situation, <laughs> not particularly in a hot tub in Bali. So yeah, I guess like that's my story. <laughs> this podcast might end up being a legal document if you're called as a witness in the uh, International Art Crime Tribunal. It's like the Thomas Crown Affair or something. Well, actually, I mean, quite a lot of investigative journalism in Russia at the moment is based on the Instagram accounts of partners of you know all of the all of the kind of these important men because they all have Instagram accounts and then obviously by Instagram account it's quite easy to place a person where they were at the time. Oh my god, it was a bit creepy though because he was like, "Oh, I'm in the presidential suite." And all that kind of stuff. Just like, oh, that's nice. I'm just in. Yeah, right in there. You could have been an oligarch's girlfriend. Oh, God, no. You missed your opportunity. I'm fine. Just think about all the cool stuff he could have bought you with his dirty money. <laughs> 
I'm fine. Because my, my parents were like at the bar or something. So I went to see them and I was like, mum, what is going on? And then we kept seeing him around the pool as well. So it was really like, and like Rembrandt guy kept coming over to me and I was like, no, go away. I don't want part anything. I don't want anything to do with this illegal art trade. <laughs> It was weird, man. You could have bought yourself some Medici documents. I could have. I could have done it. My conscience feels good that I didn't, though. <laughs> like, I'm fine. My Russian would have improved greatly, though. Yeah, that's uh, that's really funny. It is a weird story. I saved a kid from a snake as well, which was fun. Okay, well, I was about to wrap up the podcast, but let's just bring up... <laughs> you saved a kid from a snake? Yeah, there was a snake in the pool. And there's this little German boy, and he was like, snake, snake! And I, like... Commander rolled out the pool and just ran and grabbed the kid. And it was like this, this like green python type thing. It was like bright green. I'd never seen a snake so bright green. And then like, I was like, like, where is your parents? Like, where are your parents? And he was just still screaming at the snake. And my mum was like, Georgie, get back here. But then, then one of the like, the hotel staff came over and they were like, please leave the pool area. So. <laughs> It was it was a, a weird holiday. <laughs> yeah, the snake was it, the whole thing. I wonder if the snake was up in on it. <laughs> I'll tell you what, it, it was above the hot tub as well, so you never know. It could have been a spy snake. Oh my, oh my god! It, yeah, it could have it could have been like a robot with cameras for eyes, or it could have been there to poison some enemy of the state. It's all <laughs> it's all adding up. You were an unwitting participant in some kind of insane international crime. So I told my brother, and he was just like, Georgie. This always happens to you. Like, something that always happens. And it just happened to be snakes and potential art espionage. So... <laughs> I mean, a real Da Vinci Code kind of story as well. Oh, yeah. I'm there. I'm right into it now. It's just my life. I'm ready. Just pass me the codex. You should sell those stories to Dan Brown. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, he seems to be out of ideas. Yeah. I might contact him. Be like, hey, do you want to write about a blonde professor? <laughs> All of his professors seem to be men so far, so... Yeah, we'll do it. We'll get there. Get some girl power. It's time. It's it's time. (laughs) It's long past time. Well, Georgie, thank you so much for joining us. It's been fascinating to speak to you and hear all about your research. And also just infectious to hear about your passion and how much you love what you're doing. I think at a time like this, a lot of us are maybe less in love with our work (laughs) than that so it's nice to hear from someone who is just loving every minute of it it's exactly what we want on podcast so thank you for that as well thanks guys and thank you anna for hosting thank you georgia and to all our listeners out there don't tell your supervisor what you heard here today what happens in the podcast stays in the podcast not safe for publication is a podcast by and for the research students of the Faculty of Humanities at the University of Manchester. If you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter at NSFP Podcast, or you can email us at nsfppodcast at gmail.com. Our intro and outro music is Hat the Jazz by Twin Musicom.